I'm going to turn the service back to our next-gen pastor. It's the first moment this morning that I don't have one of my children attached to my legs, so you can take a deep breath. No one won't appear, one won't start barking or knock over the manger. Um, but she did care. I looked like about what happened to baby Jesus. She got him, got him back in there, settled. Um, and his headband left by my other child. So this morning, um, message of love at Christmas time. Uh, the series on Advent, we're talking about Isaiah's prophecies. Uh, the word spoken in the Old Testament that uh, foretold of what was to come, of, of who Jesus was to be to his people, to us. Uh, this morning's passage um, is from Isaiah, chapter 63, verses 7 through 9. It says, I will tell of the kindness of the Lord, the deeds for which he is to be praised, according to all the Lord has done for us. Yes, the many good things he has done for Israel, according to his compassion and many kindnesses, he said, surely they are my people, children who will be true to me. And so he became their savior. In all their distress, he was, too was distressed, and the angel of his presence saved them. In his love and mercy, he redeemed them. He lifted them up and carried them all the days of old. Isaiah recognized that God's purpose for the Messiah was to represent the love and mercy he had for his people. It is the greatest gesture of love to provide the world with a savior so we may be redeemed. And this love continues today. As we look into the nativity scene, we recognize the love of the Father, the love he has had for us. Isaiah spoke those words to the Old Testament believers. God had done many kind deeds for these people. He had delivered them from impossible circumstances in the past. And it hadn't been with bright lights of angels, but with his own presence. In his love and mercy, he redeemed them. He lifted them up, and carried him through days of old. Those deeds included how God brought the people to safety under Moses. <laughs> Moses, as the spokesperson of God, knew that he couldn't lead the mass of people on his own. They would need to be in a place where they had special protection. There's children laughter everywhere, sorry. <laughs> We like it, though. It keeps us, keeps us young. So Moses was a spokesperson for, for God, but he knew that he needed more than just himself for being, saying, hey, I've got God with me, to lead the mass of the people when he was leading the Israelites. He didn't just want some angel or some other guard to be with them in the desert. He realized they needed more. They needed the very presence of God. And God answered those prayers of Moses. God did what only he could do, and he led the way and he delivered his people. Only he could do that. There are certain things, impossible things, that only God can do in a certain type of way. The redemption of man is one of them. This is very clearly repeated throughout the Bible. In Psalm 49 it says, No man can redeem the life of another or give God a ransom for him. The ransom for a life is costly. No payment is ever enough. But then he goes on to say, but God will redeem my life from the grave. He will surely take me to himself. And Jesus said in Mark 10, verse 45, that the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Redemption has to be accomplished by God alone, because it is such an awesome and impossible feat for any mere man to accomplish. To redeem means to buy back. 
You and I are born with a debt that we owe to God, a debt of perfection. There was motivation for God to do such a thing. In verse 8, it says, Surely they are my people, children who will be true to me. So he became their savior. When I read this passage, there was one thing that kind of confused me. It says that God says, Surely they are children who will be true to me. Being true to someone is used in reference to a covenant. It usually means keeping your side of your covenant, doing your part. And I wonder, did God really think that in choosing believers that they would remain faithful to him? The translation then says that on this basis, so he became their savior. This translation makes it sound like he saved them because he thought that they would keep their side of the covenant, which implies that God didn't know the future. And it implies that God would be angry for himself for having sacrificed so much for people who aren't as faithful as he wanted them to be. Which kind of scares me because when I look at my response, when I look at my life, I see a person who doesn't always respond in the way that God would like. I'm not as faithful to God with my prayers, my offerings, my words, as he would want me to be. It makes me wonder, would God then get upset that he sent Jesus for me? It's kind of like someone who spends a lot of money on a present for you to have and wants you to use it, but then you don't use it as often as he thinks you should or complains that he gave you the present in the first place and then he threatens to take it back if you don't say thank you enough or use it every day. And this translation kind of turns the whole life of Christ, his whole birth, into an obligation. It turns Jesus into something we have to acknowledge, somebody we have to follow. Instead of a savior, he becomes a manipulative gift giver. But if that's what Jesus and the church is to you, then you've got the wrong God. You've got the wrong faith. Because the truth of the matter is this translation isn't the best. Some would even say it stinks. Because God didn't record the so. God didn't redeem his people because he thought they would be faithful to him. But as Isaiah says, I will tell of the kindness of the Lord, the deeds for which he is to be praised, according to all the Lord has done for us. Yes, the many good things he has done for the house of Israel, according to his compassion and many kindnesses, in his love and mercy he redeemed them. The text is clear. The people would praise God for his kindness, for his faithful love. The kind of love that is not dependent on the agreement of the other party, but on the very core value of the giver. The same is true about compassion. God feels compassion from his inner being for us, and not for something we do. From his deepest depths, God's compassion is constant and sincere. While often as humans, we can turn our compassion off because of cold-heartedness or feeling selfish, God expects his people to be faithful to him, but even though we aren't always faithful, it doesn't stop him from being faithful to us. It doesn't stop him from showing us his love. In other words, God didn't send Jesus to get his pound of flesh out of you, to get all he could out of you. He gave us Jesus in the manger because he loves us and wants us to be in relationship with him. He gave us Jesus so that he could live and die for us, to pay our ransom, to make it right so we could be in relationship with him. God became man because he felt compassion on us, because he is a God of endless faithfulness and endless love. He doesn't love us because we respond to him. He loves us because he is a God of love and mercy. 
And when we see God remain faithful to us in spite of our sin, in spite of the ways that we fall short, what else can we do in this season but sing away in a manger or what child is this or many other Christmas hymns that remind us so sweetly of the greatest gift that God has given us. This is something that God does, that he puts in our hands and our mouths. The responsibility of telling others about who he is. Telling others about our compassionate God. But there are some people that don't really feel up to this task. They, they, they don't want to open their mouths and proclaim who God is. That their message at Christmas time is more focused on what the weather's like, or if we're going to get enough snow this season, or what the stock market is doing, or the price of gas, all things that could distract us during the holiday season. Sometimes when we enter into the Christmas story, in our busyness, and in all that is happening around us, sometimes it's just easy to find the things to complain about, to, to complain about maybe how cold it was, or how smelly the manger might have been, or that it needs new windows or some carpeting to, to fix it up in there to make it look the best. And then when it comes to singing, when it's time to sing at Christmas time, sometimes we only sing the songs that we know, the ones we like, with fervor and excitement. But the new ones, the unfamiliar ones, the ones we may not have heard that many times before, we maybe just mumble those. Which begs the question, why are we singing at all? If this is Christmas time, if, if, if we're here to prepare ourselves, to remember, to focus on the coming of our Savior as a baby. Why are we not doing everything we can to proclaim that news, proclaim the love that came down at Christmas time in our words and our songs? Why are the things that we're talking about not about the fact that Jesus was born? Why are we not, as Go Tell It on the Mountain, shouting from the rooftops that this has happened? In spite of our lacking excitement sometimes, it is our call. It is what God has asked of us at Christmas to tell of this story. That God became man. His presence is still with us here in the word. God still comes to us in the Lord's Supper. He has covered us with his blood, not because we are faithful, not because we did anything to deserve it, but because he is faithful and because he loves us. And he showed us that love through Jesus. God still loves us, not because we sing loud or know all of the Bible passages just right, but because Jesus lived and died for us. No matter whether we are a little faithful or a lot faithful, we are all loved by God in Christ. And no matter if you are dreading this Christmas, counting down the days to the new year so you don't have to hear the songs on the radio anymore, or if you're anticipating it, with bated breath, or you have children who are counting down every moment till the day is coming. You can always look at the manger and see God's love for you, all around, unchanged. Advent is a season of hope, a season of remembering, of reliving, and embracing the anticipation of the love of God coming in its fullness on that holy night in Bethlehem. This morning we're going to close our time together with a newer Christmas song, a song that I actually had not heard before this week. You may have heard it before, or it may be your first time, 
But either way, I encourage you to take this time, this opportunity, to sing loud the hope, sing loud the love about our Savior who has come, the one we waited for. Isaiah was talking to the people of Israel, people who had been waiting in exile for years and years and years for some sort of hope, for some sort of sign that things were going to get better. And that sign were Isaiah's words that this Messiah, he was coming. And for us, he's come. He came. He came in that manger, and we get to experience that love every day. We get to experience that hope fulfilled. So as we spend this time singing this, uh, it's called Advent Song, I just invite you to remember what we've been given, to sing loud about our Savior who was born that faithful night, who in the fullness of his love has come and has changed our lives forever. Join me as I close in prayer. Father God, I thank you for this opportunity this morning to be here and to be reminded of who you are and what you have done for us, the love that you have shown us on that day in Bethlehem. I thank you for the opportunity that kids had to share the message of joy and that we can think about joy, we can think about hope, we can think about love as we continue to move through this Christmas season. As we go from here today, I pray that we will proclaim loudly this hope that we have, this hope that we live in, that we live by, and the love that you have given us. In your name we pray. Amen.